Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we, we hung up our harps, for there our captives required of us songs and our tormentors mirth mocking us, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be the one who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be the one who takes your little ones and dashes their hands against the rock. The word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Um, whoa. I just want to address... Uh, any your concerns right up front. Um, it is Mother's Day, and I am preaching a sermon. I am not preaching a Mother's Day sermon from this text. I don't think I thought this through all the way. Um, if you are new or visiting with us, welcome. Or if you haven't been with us in a while, I just want to let you all know that we are in a sermon series where we've been studying the Psalms together. And in particular, we've been focused on the topic of prayer, um, because the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. They not only show us what prayer is and how to pray, but they also invite us to a deeper, richer, emotional life with God. We see the entire spectrum of human emotion and experience brought to God in prayer in the Psalms. Uh, and in fact, the Psalms not only give us a language with which to pray our experiences and emotions, but they actually shape us. As we pray the Psalms, what we find is that we begin to see the world as God sees it. That we begin to think about our lives the way he thinks about our lives. And we begin to feel the things that God feels so this morning, we're going to be covering the emotion of anger. And I feel the need to be a little bit more specific than that because anger is a bit of a generic term. Uh, and the Bible actually gives us a wide variety of kinds and levels of anger, both good and bad, in various passages throughout Scripture. But this psalm and others like it, they show us an anger that well, it's just not your garden variety anger, is it? This is not somebody that just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. This is deep, dark outrage. The word that I would like to use is wrath. Now, I realize that is a loaded term, 
okay? And that for some of us, that might have some really negative connotations. That, that feels like a very scary word. Uh, and that's okay that you feel that way. But here's what I want to invite us to this morning. I, as we look at this psalm together, as we study it together, my hope is that we will find that wrath is not always a bad thing. That sometimes it's good, and it actually has a place in the Christian life. Okay? That's my hope. And this is how I want to break down the psalm this morning. I want us to see the reasons for wrath. What are the reasons that the psalmist is angry? And why should we feel wrath? What are the reasons for wrath? I also want us to see our resistance to wrath. Why is it that if we should feel wrath, why don't we? I also want to see the Bible's insistence on wrath. Why is it that when we are so resistant, the Bible still insists that we should feel it? And I also want us to see the purpose of wrath. I'm sorry, the promise. That's not the right word. Promise. Reasons, resistance, insistence, promise. Okay? Okay, so in our passage this morning, I see three reasons for wrath. Oppression, abuse, and betrayal. Let's, we're going to take one, one by each one in turn, okay? So where do we see oppression? This psalm was written during the exile. If you don't know what that is, that is the time period between 586 B.C. when the Babylonian army destroyed the city of Jerusalem and 539 B.C., about 50 years later, when those that were taken captive were allowed to return. So they were in exile in Babylon. That's, that's what we refer to as the exile. So our psalm writer is both a prisoner of war and a slave. So I'm going to do my best to define my terms as we go along, just so that we're all clear what I'm talking about. So here's a working definition for oppression. Oppression is when force or control or power is exerted over someone's life in such a way that it harms their life. Power is exerted over someone that harms their life. So slavery is a very obvious example of oppression, right? Because if you're a slave, your life has now become the property of somebody else. You now have no control over any of the circumstances of your life. So that's very oppressive. And I think when we talk about oppression, we tend to think in those like big categories, right? Police brutality, political corruption. Like we think of these big splashy things, but oppression isn't always so obvious. Sometimes oppression is not obvious because our cultural assumptions blind us to the very oppression that's happening in front of us, okay? Slavery has been an institution in many, many societies that did not see it as oppressive, even though it is, okay? Our cultural assumptions can blind us, but oppression isn't always big. It can be small. It can be subtle, you can experience it in the everyday life, all right? Has, has anybody ever had the experience at work where a manager or supervisor prevents you from advancing in the company? That can be a subtle form of oppression. <laughs> anybody grow up in a home where children were expected to be seen and not heard? That can be a form of oppression. Um, and oppression should make us angry. We should feel wrath about oppression because God's intention was that those with power would seek to empower those around them. 
God's intention was that those with authority and influence would leverage their authority and influence for the benefit and the flourishing of those under authority and influence. That was God's intention. And oppression is a direct violation of how God created the world to be. And it makes him angry, and it should make us angry, but it often doesn't. And there may be a lot of reasons for that, but I think one of the most common is that when we encounter oppression, our tendency is to respond with despair. Despair is giving up hope. It is a relinquishment of hope. And it goes like this. Despair says, because I can't control this oppression in my life or in the world, there's no reason to hope that it will ever change. That's despair. And it can look different in different people's lives. One version of despair that we see is something we might call a victim mentality. A victim mentality says, I can't control this oppression in my life or in the world. That means that I have no control at all over anything in my life, including my behavior. So I'm just going to let the oppression crush me. That's despair. That's a victim mentality. But another version of of despair that we see, and I think this one's more common, is denial. Now, Eric did a great job talking about denial a lot last week, but I think sometimes, I'm going to add on to it, I think sometimes denial is a mask for despair. And it goes like this, because I can't control this oppression in my life or in the world, there's no reason to hope that it will change, so I might as well get used to it. I might as well pretend like it's really not a big deal, like it's not really there, and it doesn't hurt. Anybody ever say the phrase, you know, I could get upset about it. What's the point? It won't change anything. That's actually denial masking despair. Denial says it didn't happen. It isn't really there. It doesn't really hurt. And it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal. And oppression should make us angry because God and the Bible insists on hope. Now, where do we see hope in this passage? Well, look with me in verse 1. The psalm writer weeps. Well, what is that? Well, that is an absence of denial. All right? This is a person who embraces the pain of his oppression. It is a big deal. It hurts. And he weeps about it. What about verse 2? In verse 2, we see the absence of a victim mentality. Right? The psalm writer, who is a musician and a poet, takes his harp, his musical instrument, and puts it in a tree. Because in verse 3, this, the Babylonians demand a song. So he refuses to sing the song and he hides his musical instrument. What is that? That, my friends, is what we call a silent protest. He's, he is saying, I may be oppressed, but I don't have to cooperate with my oppression. I'm not okay with the way things are. This is not how things ought to be. And while I do not have control over the circumstances of my oppression, I do have control over my response to it. And that's true of us too. We have control over our response to oppression. Um, And let me just state the obvious place of hope. Verse 7, remember, O Lord. If you see that in the Bible, that tells you this is a prayer. That is a direct request to God. This psalm is a prayer. Prayer, by its nature, is fueled by hope. You have to hope that God hears you. And you have to hope that when he hears you, that he will intervene in your circumstances. Prayer is an exercise in hope. Okay? A reason for wrath is oppression. 
We're resistant to wrath because our tendency is to respond with despair, but the Bible insists on hope. Our second reason for wrath is found in verse 3, when the Babylonians demand a happy song about Zion. Mirth is a fancy word for happy, just in case you were wondering. Um, So, Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem, okay? Um, And so, Jerusalem at this time in history was not just the capital city, it was also the center of Israelite worship because it was the location of the temple. What made Israel Israel? God had chosen them to be his people, and he lived with them in the temple in Jerusalem. So a song about Zion was not just a song about like, hey, Jerusalem's a great place to live. It would have been a song celebrating the redemptive work of God on the people's behalf, and that he's our God and he lives with us. But the Babylonians, when they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. So when they say, sing us a song of Zion, the city's in ruins and the temple is gone. That's mockery. Um, Now, mockery is a kind of verbal abuse. And there's different kinds of abuse, not just verbal. There's also physical abuse. And there's sexual abuse. And there's emotional abuse. And there's psychological abuse. And even though there's all of these different kinds of abuse... The thread that runs right through all of them is that abuse by its very nature is dehumanizing. Abuse is dehumanizing. When someone gets abused, either in a big way or in a small way, the abuser communicates to the person they're abusing, you don't deserve to be treated with dignity and respect like a human being. You don't deserve to be treated with dignity and respect like a human being. That's abuse. Um, Let me put it differently. If contempt is seeing somebody as something less than human, abuse is acted out contempt. It's a display of contempt, either through words, actions, or both. Okay? Now, ask a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist, and they will tell you that hand-in-hand with abuse comes shame. Shame is that internal sense that there's, you're dirty, that you're unacceptable, that there's just something fundamentally wrong with you, which makes sense. Because if abuse is the abuser saying, you don't deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, shame is the internalization of that. If abuse is contempt for another, shame is self-contempt. And again, ask a counselor this. It is very common, it is very common that when someone begins to tell their story about their experience of abuse... Almost always this question arises, why me? Why did they choose me? Why did the abuse happen to me? Did I do something? Did I say something that invited the abuse? Is there something about me that invites abuse? Is there something wrong with me? Do you hear the shame? And that sense of shame actually gets reinforced in our society. Um, I'm sure many of you remember on the news, um, it seems to not be as central focus anymore, but a few years ago, a lot of young women, brave young women, came out and began talking about the prevalent rape culture on university campuses right now, Um, that there just seems to be an incredibly tragic high rate of sexual assault and rape of young women at at university campuses. 
Um, and these women became, came forward and they started telling their stories. And what was really interesting is all the questions that came up from the media, from the police, from the faculty was all centered around her behavior. What was she wearing? How much had she been drinking? What did she say to the young man? Had they been flirting? Were they texting earlier in the night? Had they been intimate before? What does all that imply? That implies that if she had acted differently, it wouldn't have happened, which implies that it's actually her fault. But it's not her fault. Abuse is never the fault of the victim, and abuse should make us angry. We should feel wrath over abuse because God's intention was that every human being would be treated with dignity and respect and honor because every human being, regardless of distinction, is made in his image. The Bible insists on dignity. Now, where do we see dignity in our passage? If you look at verses 5 and 6, you get a very strong statement of dignity. The psalmist says, remember, musician, let my right hand forget its skill. May I never play again. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. May I never sing again if I forget you, Jerusalem, if I don't set you above my highest joy. And again, Jerusalem is synonymous with being of the people of God. Okay? Now, that's really interesting. Do you know why? Because the Bible makes it very, very clear that the exile was the result, was the consequence of Israel's idolatry. All the way back in the wilderness, way back before they were ever in the promised land, God warned the people. He said, listen, I am the Lord your God. There is nobody else besides me. You are to worship me exclusively. And if you don't, if you chase after these other gods of these other nations, I will discipline you. I will kick you out of the land that I'm about to give you. And he warned them. And he warned them again and again. For hundreds of years, he warned them and they did not listen. And his discipline came with the Babylonian army. Now, you would think that if that was the case, the psalmist would start off with, it's all our fault. We had it coming. We asked for it. He told us not to worship idols. We did, and we got what we deserved. But he doesn't say that. What does that tell you? Well, for one thing, it does tell you that sin has consequences. It always does, for you and for the people around you. And it tells you that in God's economy, sin does not justify sin. In God's economy, sin does not justify sin. Yes, the consequences of Israel's idolatry was exile, but that does not make the oppression and the violence and the abuse of Babylon okay. Babylon is still culpable. When we see abuse in the world, either against us, or against somebody else, even if that person has sinned horrifically in the past, it should make us feel wrath because every person bears the image of God. And to show contempt for someone who bears the image of God is to show contempt for God himself. Let's take it back to our young girl on the college campus. Did she drink too much? Let's say she did. And if you drink too much to excess, that's a sin and there are consequences. But that does not make rape okay. Ever. Abuse is a reason for wrath. We are resistant to wrath because our tendency is to respond with shame, but the Bible insists on dignity. Our last reason for wrath is betrayal. That comes in verse 7 with the Edomites. Now, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. 
Okay, do you guys remember back in Genesis, Jacob, Esau, the twin sons of Isaac, son of Abraham, God chose Jacob, he got renamed Israel, he, they became, his descendants became the people of Israel, right? Well, Esau also had descendants, they also received a land known as Edom, which is just south of Israel. So, the Edomites were the neighbors and the relatives of Israel. Now, to be fair, like most family members and like many neighbors out there, they did not always get along. There was a bit of a tenuous relationship between Israel and Edom. But at this time in history, it was very common that when a large invading army began marching through and conquering all these smaller nations and states, that these smaller kingdoms would band together and form a large army and to fight off the large invading force, okay? That was a normal expectation, but Edom does not play along with that. And they not only do not play along, they cheer as Jerusalem falls, lay it bare, burn it to the ground, burn it to the ground. Now, I don't know what your experience is with betrayal, but I can tell you, it hurts. It really hurts. On the closer the relationship with the person who betrays you, the deeper the pain of the betrayal. Um, and betrayal should make us angry. We should feel wrath about betrayal because God's intention was that every human being who bears his image, which is everybody, would be faithful as God is faithful. That all of us would be true to our word as God himself is true to his word. Betrayal is a direct violation of how God created the world to be. And it should make us angry, but oftentimes it doesn't. Because betrayal hurts so much, our typical response is to figure out a way to never get hurt again. And I think the most common way we do that in our culture is apathy or ambivalence. Apathy says nothing really matters and I don't really care. And I think that manifests itself most of the time in cynicism especially in our culture. Cynicism says, everything's a joke. Life sucks and then you die. <laughs> That's cynicism, right? And listen, guys, this is our cultural moment. We are an incredibly cynical culture. Just watch television for three seconds. We are an incredibly cynical culture. And the reason is we feel betrayed by every social institution. We feel betrayed by the government. We feel betrayed by the banks. We feel betrayed by big business. We feel betrayed by the family. Half of marriages end in divorce. We feel betrayed by the church. I don't know about you guys, but some of the worst betrayal I've experienced has been in the context of the church. We feel betrayed. And so what have we done as a culture? We've said, well, I don't want to hurt anymore, so I'm just going to say that nothing really matters, and I don't care, and everything's a joke. So nothing has the power to hurt me. But there's a real problem with living life that way. A real problem. And I don't think anybody said it quite so poignantly as C.S. Lewis. And we haven't heard from old Lou in like, what, a month? <laughs> far too long, my friends. Far too long. I'm just going to read it, okay? This comes from one of his books, The Four Loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. 
not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? If you block yourself from experiencing pain, you will simultaneously block yourself from love and joy. Let me put it differently. The only people who never get hurt are corpses. But the Bible insists on love. Now I realize some of you are thinking right now, hold on, Matt Creasy. I am holding this psalm in my hand and I see the wrath. I do not see the love. There is no love on this page. Fair. Have you considered the very fact that you are holding this psalm in your hand? In the very depths of his sorrow and his anguish and his wrath, this poet took the time to put words to his experience and he wrote it down for the sake of others so that other people could have words put to their sorrow and their anguish and their wrath. Honest, vulnerable art is an act of love. Let me speak a minute to the artists in the room. Okay, just a quick aside. Don't let cynicism destroy your art. It's easy to do. People will like it. They will buy it because we live in a cynical culture. But it is ultimately, it's unloving and it's dead. Okay. Our reasons for wrath are oppression, abuse, and betrayal. We're resistant to wrath because of despair and shame and apathy. But the Bible insists on hope, dignity, and love. Now, are you starting to see the beauty of the psalm? Here's a person who has suffered horrendous oppression and terrible abuse and awful betrayal, and instead of giving in to despair and shame and apathy, he allows himself to feel wrath over the direct violation of the way God intended the world to be. He is angry as God is angry, and he brings his wrath before God in prayer. Now that raises a big question for us. How are we actually supposed to pray our wrath? Like, let's say we actually feel it. How do we pray it? Because, especially as Christians, right? Most of us in the room are followers of Jesus. We read a psalm like this, and we get really resistant, right? Verse 8, blessed shall be the one who repays you for what you have done to us. Blessed shall be the one who takes your little one's heads and dashes them against the rock. We go, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn on the other also. We're, we're not supposed to pray like this. We're not supposed to pray for God to give us personal vendettas or personal retribution. Right? We're not supposed to pray to the, for personal vengeance to be taken on people, right? And you're right. We're not supposed to pray that. 
And the psalmist is not doing that either. You see, that last verse, the one that really makes us all go like, (gasps) the dashing the little one's heads, those are not the psalmist's words. Those are God's words. In the book of Isaiah chapter 13, God, through his prophet, pronounces judgment on Babylon for all of the oppression and abuse and betrayal and wickedness and violence that they had brought. They were very violent people. And God says, all of the violence that you have perpetrated will be visited back upon you. And he lists thing after thing after thing. And one of the things on the list is that just as Babylon had murdered infants in the cities that they conquered, so too would their infants be murdered. It reminds me a little bit of when Jesus said, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. God promised to bring justice to bear against Babylon. And our psalmist, in his wrath, comes before God and he claims God's promise. He says, God, you promised justice. Bring your justice. God loves it when we hold him to his word because he's always faithful to it. When we experience oppression and abuse and betrayal against us or in the world, we should feel wrath and we should bring that wrath to God in prayer and we should claim his promise of justice. And we can pray that because God did not just promise temporary justice against Babylon. In Isaiah 13, God also, right alongside there, promised that he would bring justice to bear against all wickedness and all oppression and all abuse and all betrayal. And in fact, that promise gets repeated throughout Scripture. And we call it the day of the Lord. And God has promised that there is a day coming when all wrongs will be made right, when all injustice will be dealt with, when all evil and wickedness will be brought to his justice once and for all and forever, that his world will be radically cleansed of evil forever. In the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, the apostle John was given a vision of that day, of the day of the Lord. And what he saw was Jesus. Not as a carpenter, not as humble Jesus, meek and lowly, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he descends from the sky and out of his mouth comes a sword. And with that sword, he strikes down all oppressors and all abusers and all betrayers. And it says that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Now, our culture, and I'm sure many of us in the room go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I I can't handle, that's just too intolerant. But I want you to hear the good news. Have you been abused? Have you ever been oppressed? Have you ever been betrayed? Did your abuser say, it didn't happen? Did your oppressor say, it's your fault? Did your betrayer get away with it? 
God has promised, and he always keeps his promises. God has promised that there is a day coming when the oppressor, the abuser, the betrayer will have to face King Jesus himself and hear him say, it did happen. It's your fault, and I hold you accountable. Justice is coming. God has promised. Now, there are many in our culture, and I'm sure there are some in the room, that go, still, okay, that sounds good, but God is a God of love, right? God is a God of love. So how can a God of love come wielding the sword? God is a God of love. John 14 says God is love, and he has proven it because the one who wields the sword was the one who fell under it. God so loved us that he sent his little one to have his head dashed. God sent his son to be oppressed. The Lord Jesus was thrown into utter despair on the cross so that we could have an eternal hope. The Lord Jesus was abused. He was mocked. He was beaten. He endured the agony of the cross, despising its shame so that we could have our dignity as the image bearers of God finally and fully restored. The Lord Jesus was betrayed by everyone closest to him so that we could be set free from living lives of self-protective apathy and instead be set free to live lives of love where we do love our enemies and we do pray for those who persecute us and we say in love, repent. The kingdom of God is coming. Are you an oppressor? Are you an abuser? Have you abused anybody? Big or small? Have you betrayed? Come to the Lord Jesus. Not only can he forgive you because he took the sword of justice on your behalf, but he can transform you. He can turn you into an agent of hope and dignity and love. Are you, have you been oppressed? Have you been abused? Have you been betrayed? Come to the Lord Jesus. Not only can he sympathize with your pain, but he can heal it. Let me pray.